My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Sex should never be painful it's a particular type of kink that you have. I'm talking about irritating pain that may crop up during or after penetration and potentially interfere with everything from pleasure to intimacy to desire to your ability to go about your daily life as usual. While some common causes have to do with things like positions and genital dryness and kind of general wear and tear, Others reflect a medical condition in need of treatment, and some can really benefit from physical therapy. While pain during sex is common, research shows that most folks are not comfortable talking about it, and many gals write it off as normal. Is it normal? And is it manageable? And how can you tell if professional help may be ideal? What if you're feeling fine, but you accidentally break your partner's penis sometime? We're going to explore all of this and more today. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm stoked to be here recording in Los Angeles and to dive into these topics. For occasional Girl Boner extras, be sure to sign up for email updates at augustmclaughlin.com, M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N.com. If you're enjoying the show, I hope you'll also subscribe on iTunes if you haven't and leave a simple review while you're there. I'm so pleased to welcome Heather Jeffcoat, a doctor of physical therapy and owner of Femina Therapy, which has two Los Angeles offices. She's also the author of Sex Without Pain, a self-treatment guide to the sex life you deserve. Because Heather works predominantly with cisgender women, for the sake of this episode, we'll be using terms like women, female, she, and her to refer to people with vulvas. If you're a trans guy or a non-binary person with a vagina, a lot of this will apply equally to you. Thank you for joining me, Heather. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me here, August. I have appreciated your work from an online stance for a while. Uh, following, I've, I've had the pleasure of quoting you in an article, and I love the social media advice and insight and articles that you share. Could you first share what led you into this work? Yeah, when I was in PT school, I honestly, I didn't realize that this was something a physical therapist could do. I didn't know anything about these conditions. I just knew I wanted to, uh, you know, work with people one-on-one in whatever capacity I could. So my initial thought was I would go into like, you know, orthopedic sports medicine. And I very quickly realized that that's not a way to work with people one-on-one. Like that is just not the way the healthcare system works. And Um, You know, I just started sort of exploring other opportunities through my program at Duke University, and they have a lot of uh, extra coursework and guidance related to pelvic floor physical therapy for men and women. And I just thought, well, that's really interesting. And but I'm like, I don't know if that's really what I want to do. Like, that's not why I came to school. And so I just I kind of, you know, took some classes and after I graduated, took some more classes and realized, okay, well, I'm actually good at this. So that's good. And you know what? I really enjoy this beyond having the one-on-one with patients. Like you're helping them with such a personal problem that very few people 
one, believe that they have, and two, that even if you believe that they have it, a lot of people don't know what to do. They're very fearful of treating them. It's There's a lot of you know emotions behind this, more so than someone that has knee pain. So yeah. you're really dealing with a lot. I read, you know, Debbie Herbenick has done a bunch of research on pain during sex, and she was saying how it's very rare to find a general practitioner in the health field who's well-versed in this, partly because there's only been research for like 10 years. And then also, healthcare practitioners often aren't trained in this. What responses were people coming in with after they've seen other practitioners and, you know, maybe are still seeking support and didn't feel like they found the answers? Well, that's a common thread in my practice. I'm not the first or second person that this woman has seen when she walks into my office. I'm like the seventh, the twelfth. Um, you know, I've had people move from out of state to come and be treated by my office and, you know, myself and my staff because, you know, this type of therapy does not exist everywhere. And, you know, the my, my response is I completely agree. They're not getting this in the general medical education. Um, many GPs, um, the general practitioners, they they don't really believe that this is a physical problem. Uh, they will discount it as psychological many times. Um, so they're not really ever getting that physical component treated or they're misdiagnosed. There's a huge, you know, with all this research being done in this area of painful intercourse, there's a whole naming debate. Like the nomenclature, is this vulvodynia? Is this vaginismus? Is this dyspnea? So you start reading all these articles, but do those people actually have vulvodynia or do they have vaginismus? Like, what are you treating here? What are you studying? So they're trying to get more unified nomenclature, but you still have to to go back to those primary providers and educate them that these are, you know, actual conditions and that there are proper referral pathways for the for women that present with these problems. It's so interesting because obviously there are a lot of emotional factors when you're dealing with a physical issue like this and I can imagine it being difficult to sort out if you're having trouble talking about it and you maybe feel shame around it and then somebody tells you it's all in your head, then it, you might go, oh, I'm so, I'm such a bad, shameful per for person, which is completely not true. Correct. There's a ton of shame that's associated with this and women that feel like less of a woman, um, less of a wife, less of a girlfriend because they cannot engage fully, you know, to the intimate level that they want to that with their partner or that their partner wants them to and that they're physically blocked because of pain. And it creates a lot of, uh, you know, it can create tons of friction in a relationship, obviously. Um, you know, I've had many patients divorced. And one of the primary problems was shame around this, blame placed on the woman for having this pain when you when you hear their stories, they haven't been given a good treatment plan. And I mean, I've had so many women, one of my patients this morning, her OBGYN said that this is something you'll have for the rest of your life and gave her lidocaine. And that was her solution to her pain, to just mask it, to just numb it. And just this is unfortunately an incurable thing. So thankfully, she is smart enough. And there's Google and her, you know, family supports her and she shared with them. And they helped her, you know, find her way to me and my center and um, my, you know, my book. And so she could start like, OK, this is a real problem. I don't have to just use lidocaine for my whole life. And there is a name to this, um, wow. an actual diagnosis. It's so great that she had the wherewithal and that you were available, especially since I believe that 
how we feel and what we're told and what we're taught and what we believe about our sexuality can be very self-fulfilling. So if you think you're always going to have some problem, then you may always experience it because you don't keep seeking support or you expect it to be painful. Maybe you start avoiding sex. Um, I would love to share a few kind of informal case studies based on on real experiences of a few people and talk a little bit about the different conditions that that they might potentially have. So first would be from Bethany. So Bethany says she has so much pain during sex, she can't have any penetration at all. She said a penis, finger, or sex toy, or even going as far as trying to put a tampon in can really hurt, she said and has no idea what caused it. She had an annual, annual physical that showed nothing alarming. Her hormones are good. What might she be facing? That sounds a lot like a typical history for somebody with vaginismus, um, that sort of either inability to have sex or painful penetration if they do have sex is very classic. And those that's what those patients say. They say, um, my doctor said I'm normal. You know, like you better, they sent me to a psychologist because there's nothing physically wrong with me. And that's a really big problem with the assessment skills of uh, medical providers is they're not trained for the most part in musculoskeletal assessment. That's where the orthopedic surgeons are trained. That's where the, uh, they're called physical medicine and rehab doctors. That's what they're trained to do. But they're not working with pelvic floor pain conditions, painful intercourse. That's not them. So you have OBGYNs that don't understand how muscles influence function in this area. And they just, you know, swab and they're like, well, you don't have an infection. And I did an ultrasound and your ovaries look good. So it must be in your head and you need to go just talk about your pain. Mm. And by them telling them it's in your head, if it wasn't before, it sure is now. And then yeah. you have to unbreak that cycle along with everything that's already physically happening sure. in their body. Wow. That's, it sounds very complex, but also manageable, which is great. And I know vaginismus is basically a spasming that's happening. And and I read that it can be triggered by shame, you know, having a – and actually, we answered a question from a listener at one point who had so much shame around sexuality that there was just like this clenching up of the muscles. But again, it's maybe emotionally driven, but there's a real physical consequence. It's You're exactly right. And, you know, I've had many women from like ultra-religious backgrounds, and they're always told that sex is wrong. But now that they're married, you know, they waited till they got married. They're, they, they can't really unclench, you know, to use your words. And they do get stuck in that. And part of it is, you know, cognitive, but they have that physical component. And you have to treat both. You cannot... Just talk away a physical clenching. Just like if somebody has chronic low back pain, you don't send them to a psychologist to talk about their back pain. You send them to physical therapy. And, you know, the kind of physical therapy I do, you know, I I can treat everything in the body from shoulders to hips. But most of what we do is start with pelvic floor physical therapy. So if you're searching for somebody, you want to use those keywords, not just physical therapy, because the place half a mile from your house probably doesn't offer this kind of physical therapy. Too general. Yeah, I was reading that as well, uh, that you need to find someone who really specializes. So Paula said she's experiencing an itching feeling that sometimes feels like it's burning or stabbing around the opening of her vagina. She said it sometimes seems to come out of nowhere, but is especially triggered by penetration and after long days at the office where she works at a desk job. What might that be? Yeah, so that sounds a lot like vulvodynia. And I should say, you know, I'm not a 
medical, um, you know, I'm not a physician, an MD, but I hear these stories all the time. And so, you know, a lot of times they just come with a general diagnosis of dyspareunia, which just means painful intercourse. It's very nondescript. It's a symptom, right? Almost. It's a yeah. symptom, but so is low back pain. And that's allowed as a diagnosis. And there's many reasons you can have low back pain from a herniated disc to a muscle strain to other reasons, to arthritis, et cetera. So it's kind of to me to figure out what's what is their actual pain and what could be driving it. But that I'm so glad that you had that in a case study because itching is one of those sort of lesser thought about diagnosis uh, symptoms, I should say, of vulvodynia, of the vulvodynia diagnosis. Um, but often it more is classic burning, um, sharp pains, um, or sometimes stabbing, knife-like pain in the external genitalia area in the vulva. And I imagine if you were experiencing itching, I know they sell like over-the-counter itch cream and itch spray and all that stuff, which wouldn't help if that's if it was an internal issue. Exactly. And the reason why the itching occurs is because the muscles inside, they get so drawn up. They're so tight. But you have the physical connection of the muscle layer inside to the skin on the outside. So if you don't understand how muscles can influence tissue, then you're going to miss that that's a muscular problem in origin that still might need the skin treated on the outside, but it's not a yeast infection. It doesn't need monostat. You know, it doesn't come with odor or colored discharge. You know, it just has itching. And, you know, there was a study done in 2015 that looked at women that complained of itching, and 35% of them did not have a yeast infection. So you can't use that symptom alone to diagnose a yeast infection. And I've had patients that have self-treated, and maybe they had a yeast infection in the past, so they're like, okay, it's itching. It kind of feels like that. They use uh, over-the-counter yeast cream, and they have a severe allergic reaction to it. And then that sort of sets their vulvodynia from a itching state to a, like, burning, stabbing mm. state. And... Uh. And, you know, some of these women, they can't even wear underwear. Like they have to, I I can tell if a vulvodynia patient comes into the office with a skirt, they're probably not wearing underwear and they they just can't even tolerate anything against their, their perineum, their like external Mm -hmm. genitalia area. Wow. Wow. That is so fascinating. And so Kaya is experiencing a lot of pressure in her bladder. She feels like she has to pee often, but doesn't have a bladder infection. She said she had a test. Um, It's the worst around her period when she's having sex and sometimes when she's stressed out, which she is a lot, she says, because of this. And so that sounds a lot. um, In a more severe case, uh, they would be diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, which the whole naming debate, they're calling more painful bladder syndrome now. Um, Or it could just be like an urgency frequency, but they're all kind of the same because interstitial cystitis, painful bladder, they have an urgent feeling that doesn't go away. Sometimes they pee, um, but then they still have to, they feel like they have to pee two minutes later, even though they just went and there's nothing in their bladder. So there's a disruption there in their, like how their nervous system is perceiving how full their bladder is, but their muscles are also responding to that discomfort or that frank pain that they're having. And a lot of times women with painful bladder syndrome also have vulvodynia, or I should just say painful sex, because I'm not really sure if they all had true vulvodynia. But the research shows the incidence of women with interstitial cystitis and vulvodynia is 49%. So it's almost like one in two. If you have one diagnosis, um, you know, vulvodynia is concurrent with IC almost half the time. Wow. And it's pretty fascinating. And, um, you know, it's it's. You have to look at how the muscles can contribute. And in all these cases, this vaginismus case, this vulvodynia case, this painful bladder case, 
I find high tone muscles or, you know, you say spasm. Spasm means it's basically kind of twitching. High tone means it's just always in a high state of rest. So it's sort of almost if you want to think it's tomato, tomato, but, but there's like a slight difference. But in general, like the muscles are just at a higher state of rest and they have a hard time relaxing. And that can in turn pull on the tissues that can pinch nerves and that can Eventually, it could lead, you could have hip pain, or does someone that have hip pain maybe later develop these pelvic floor issues because some of your deep hip muscles, some of your deep hip rotators, connect directly to your middle layer of your pelvic floor muscle. So if you have tightness in your hip, that'll make the pelvic floor tighter. Or if the pelvic floor is tight for whatever reason because you had a recurrent urinary tract infection, maybe that could make the hip tight over time. You know, these are things that need to be researched more, but when you look at the anatomy and how close everything is, I mean, I don't think it's very far off in theory to, oh, to consider that. Completely. I'm so glad you explained the tomato-tomato spasm, you know, <laughs> because every time I read about vaginismus, it usually the definition is just like a spasm. You know, it's really basic. And when I think spasm, I think twitch. Like, I think I would think that if I were having a vaginal spasm, I would feel this like twitchy, 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 twitchy feeling. Right. So if you read that and you're like, no, I don't feel that. Yeah. <laughs> it's confusing. It, it is confusing. And it's, um, you know, most of my patients hardly, I'd say like 2% of the time I actually feel that twitch. Usually it, it feels more like uh, rigid, like just high tone, stiff, has a hard time relaxing. And it's more that, but, you know, it's, you have to humanize their problem, right? Because they feel like it's just a problem in their mind. I pull out my pelvic models. I've got like 3D pelvic models. I've got diagrams of pelvises and their muscles. And I show them, you know, in anatomy, muscles are represented as red. These are all the spots that I touched that were tender or that reproduced your pain or maybe your symptom of urinary urgency, whatever their symptom is. All I did was touch muscle and kind of the tissue around the muscle. You have a problem that is physical and I was able to find some areas of dysfunction. I can treat this. I was able mm. to find it. I can treat this. And I swear they'll leave like 20% better just having their pain validated yeah. because they were just so scared. Like, you know, I was the last hope. And, you know, in for um, interstitial cystitis and painful bladder, for a long time, physical therapy was the last thing. Pelvic floor physical therapy was the last thing on the, on the little algorithm that the American Urology Association uh, puts out. And we were we were last, but it was in 2014 or 2015 they came out with updated guidelines that actually put physical therapy up towards the top of the al algorithm after diet, like behavioral changes, um, but before some like more invasive procedures like bladder installations, which oftentimes flared patients up. Mm -hmm. Well, at least in my experience, I, I did help some, but yeah. you know if they're coming to me. A few years ago, they had already tried everything else, so oh. nothing else really helped them. And what ultimately did help was the pelvic floor physical therapy. So that's why they moved it up, because why is something a last resort if it's kind of the only thing that works? Or, Absolutely. You know, and diet's a huge thing, too, so I don't want to say, you know, I'm very pro-pelvic PT, obviously, but... Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, it got pushed up because it was proven to be one of the most effective things for it. So how common... I know these are... You mentioned a few of these. There's many different kinds of these dysfunctions and lots of different physical causes. I know that a lot of women experience sexual pain when it's an actual dysfunction. How common is that? It's beyond like having vaginal dryness. 
So if you define it as sexual dysfunction, um, a study that's quoted a lot that was out three or so years ago, four years ago maybe now, put sexual dysfunction at 43%. And that is not just pain. That could be orgasm dysfunction from anorgasmia, which is not being able to have an orgasm, to dysorgasmia, which is a painful orgasm, to, um, you know, painful sex, to unable to have sex, you know, which is aperunia. And... um, that they put that at 43%. So that's that's a really high number. Um, and with all of this sexual research, every study I think that I've read says how underreported these problems are. So I'm like, okay, so the people reporting it, it's almost 50%. Like, are we talking 80? Who knows? Because it's underreported. It's definitely more. It's definitely more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Uh, one of the studies that I read, it was involving, they asked men and women who had experienced sexual pain whether or not they were comfortable talking about it. And what was interesting was they both did not feel comfortable overall. The majority, there were some people who who did, but a lot of discomfort. But the reasons were different for women and men. And the reasons, which tend to be kind of societally driven, you know, is that women tend to feel guilt that they're not being sexy enough or sexual enough for their partner, or they're not performing well for their partner, or they're not you know, um, seductive enough or desirous enough. And the men were feeling like they couldn't admit it because it was demasculating them. Like it was a very not macho thing to not be like always sexually ready, and which is interesting, right? But there's shame in both cases. Yes, there is. And also, um, you know, these these patients and these couples, they're made to feel like these painful sex disorders are ultra rare. And they, they just, they are not rare conditions. And when you break down vulvodynia, for example, I've seen research that has it as high as in the like 20%, like I think around 23% or so, like 10 to 23%. Vaginismus, they've reported in as low as 1% up to 15% in various studies. So again, how rare is that? You know, breast yeah. cancer is at about 12%. And everyone knows about breast cancer. So, yeah, but a lot of people haven't heard of this. A lot of people listening, this is the first time they ever heard of these. Yes. And, and I'm glad because it is so common that if they don't have that problem, then either their sister does, their best friend, their mom, they know somebody that has this problem. So they should just, they should share this particular episode yes. with, you know, all their friends and, and just point them to listen to it if they don't feel comfortable bringing it up themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So when it comes to addressing these issues, what are some of the signs that what you are experiencing does perhaps need professional help? And when is it when is it something that's sort of like not a big deal for sure? When do you need to see somebody? Well, if it's causing you any pain or discomfort or limiting your functional activity, which in this case would be sex, then you should see somebody because something isn't right. You should be able to do what you want to do, right? If your knee started hurting and you wanted to go on a hike and you couldn't hike anymore, you would go somebody to you would go to see somebody to get something done about that. You need to treat your pelvic floor like you would treat the rest of your body. It is hugely important. The function of that muscle does everything from keeping you from leaking on yourself to supporting your uh, pelvic organs, to providing sexual pleasure, and to just allowing you to enjoy, you know, intercourse and um, has postural role, you know. So your back pain could be related to a problem in your pelvic floor because the pelvic floor is considered now a postural muscle. Um, 
you know, when should you sort of seek further? You know, okay, so you go to your doctor. Your doctor tells you nothing's wrong. I've done my test. Nothing's wrong. Clearly, you know you have a loss of function and uh, and or, you know, pain, whatever it is. So you should, you know, just go to someone else because if they're not giving you good advice, you need you need to believe that your pain is real and see somebody that can help you figure out why you're having the pain. Okay. That's great, great advice. You mentioned bladder leakage, and I know that is very, very common as well. And I'm wondering if there is a difference, yes, between, I know after, for example, childbirth, sometimes people sneeze, they laugh, they they leak a little. Is that always something that is you know, worth seeking some sort of support and treatment for? Or is there a big difference between that and like leaky bladder syndrome or one of these clinical definitions? I, I think if you are peeing on yourself, even if it's a few drops, you should see somebody about it. And you should not wait until you're done breastfeeding because the doctors will tell people, oh, once you're done breastfeeding, it should get better. You know, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I mean, one in three women have incontinence. Like, it's a huge problem. And you hear a lot more about it because of, you know, Depends commercials and stuff like that. But, you know, it's as big of a problem as pain in that area. Um, yeah, I, mean, I would. If I was peeing on myself, I would go I would go see somebody, and I wouldn't let somebody tell me that it's normal. And it gets normalized. Um, incontinence does painful sex does because it's very common it in certain subsets right so like after having a baby incontinence it, it goes it gets higher after a vaginal delivery um, you, you, women have more of a chance of getting stress incontinence which is like with exercise coughing laughing sneezing uh, c-section women actually have a little bit higher risk of urge incontinence which is a sudden urge to go to the bathroom and then they leak on the way but they both being pregnant and having a baby increases your risk of one or the other. It's And it's very common, but you shouldn't, you know, if you know that you hurt your back, you're not going to do anything about it just because everyone has back pain. I mean, people just keep like, oh, it's a pelvic floor. Oh, you had a baby. Just, just, you know. You have to live with it. You have to live with with it. it. It's just, it's normal. They'll say it's normal. You had a baby. It's normal. Your baby was nine and a half pounds. But the thing is, it's common. And that word is used too interchangeably by healthcare providers when they mean completely different things. If you look them in the dictionary, they mean two different things. Common is not the same definition as normal. So people need to just take more control of their own health care and not let somebody else tell them that it's okay. It's okay that you are having painful sex after having a baby. It's, it's, it's normal because it's not okay. It's a quality of life issue. Just as if you're struggling with mental illness, I've heard from a lot of people who go in to see their psychiatrist and they say, my desire is gone or I'm having these issues. And they're like, oh, it's normal. No, but it's not, like you said, normal versus natural, normal versus common. Yes. And you don't have to live with it. It's part of, it's interesting that you mentioned waiting, the advice to wait until after you're done breastfeeding. Yeah. And it's like, does what are you saying? Like, the ba- obviously the baby's very, very valuable, but so are you. Oh, it's all about the baby when you talk about delivering. Because, yes, it's important and you want a healthy delivery, but the mom gets forgotten like way too often. And, you know, the thing and she just has normalized it, too, because probably at least 30 percent of her friends are peeing their pants, too. So it's it's all just kind of normalized within like their community groups and I think in society and with their healthcare providers. You know, with with the painful sex component after having a baby, there was an amazing study that came out a couple years ago that I love to talk about because I'm like, 
I knew it was more common than everyone was saying. Like it was kind of validating what I was preaching all along. And it was a study done out of Australia and published in an international OBGYN journal. Over 1,200 women, and they were surveyed after having a baby. And they were asked, um, you know, basically, did you have painful sex on your first time returning to intercourse? And between whether their first time was between six weeks and six months was not statistically significant. But 89% of women had painful sex on their first attempt after having a baby. And it did not matter if they had a C-section. In fact, if they had a C-section, whether it was elective or um, scheduled, uh, or I should say emergent versus scheduled, um, or if they had uh, like a traumatic vaginal delivery, those were actually a little bit higher than a non-traumatic natural vaginal delivery um, in women that reported painful sex on their first attempt. And 89%. And so, okay, so it's common, but is it normal for anyone to have painful sex? And then I've gotten I've gotten a few calls uh, since that study, and I've been able to quote because they did a follow-up study that looked at 18 months. And they said, are you, ha- are you experiencing ongoing painful sex? Four out of 10 women were still having painful sex 18 months after delivery. Whoa. Which is a huge number. And yes. women, they're just like, they, it's been normalized. Uh-huh. And they're not seeking help. And, you know, patients, uh, well, if I, my doctor said once I stop breastfeeding, it'll go away because my hormones will get balanced. And yes, the hormones are why, like some of those women that have even elective C-sections, still have painful sex because you can't control your hormones. Your hormones will do what they do when the baby's out. You will lose some estrogen. You will have vaginal dryness. You will have tissue thinning that might create more sensitivity in the vaginal walls. All these women should be using lots of lube when they go back to sex until their hormones normalize. Then they can start like tapering off the lube and go back to hopefully, you know, the way things were normally before. Yes. So, but wow. so when they're like, my doctor said I want to stop breastfeeding, I'm like, well, it's not, your gut muscles aren't going to stop guarding if you're having painful sex. And that's why yeah. I think. Like, are you going to stop eating if your appetite goes down too? Like that, that just doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. You know, and women in menopause also kind of get the same line. Like, oh, the hormones, it's just, it just, meni- happens. It just happens. It's menopause. And, you know, women in menopause, they need lube. And, you know, sex doesn't have to stop because you hit menopause or stop because you've had a baby. Um, It just needs to change. You need to modify how you approach it. And you can still enjoy a, like, healthy, pain-free sex life without, you know, you don't need to stop. Yeah. Some women have increasingly stronger orgasms into midlife and beyond. And and it's so important to know because if you only feel comfortable, for example, talking to, say, a girlfriend, and she's like, oh, yeah, it happened to me too. Again, it's been normalized to so many people. It's interesting what you said about people having pain after childbirth, and sometimes it goes on and on. I'm wondering how many of these conditions are chronic. Like if somebody's listening and they're like, oh, my gosh, I think I had vulvodynia, but I don't have it now. Or, you know, because if it's that common, I'm thinking – there are probably a lot of people who, is this something that they just tend to live with vaginismus for years and years and years and years? Or is this something that sometimes just kind of comes up periodically? I mean, with um, with vaginismus, not so much with vulvodynia or interstitial cystitis or painful bladder. Those can have flares of pain where sometimes it's better than others. But I would say the underlying cause, it, it does not go away. If it flares, there's still something underlying that needs to be treated. With vaginismus, I also don't think that's something that just goes away. And just to dispel a huge myth that's out there related to vaginismus, because I'd, I'd probably at least two out of 10 patients that come in that haven't had babies tell me that their OB said 
if they have a baby, it will cure their vaginismus. And um, so generally if a muscle is guarded and in high tone, if you apply a really quick stretch to it, it is not going to just heal the problem of a really high tone. Muscles have memory. They go back. I've had many women where the pain was actually worse after because on top of now a muscle tear that they probably had during delivery and um, you know, they also have the hormone changes and the vaginal dryness. And so they're like, they're emotionally devastated because the amount of time they fought to even try to have sex to get pregnant because so then that would be part of their cure. Yes, they wanted a baby, but they had this mindset that this was going to cure them as well. And then to be worse, I mean, absolutely devastating for these women. Wow. Wow. That is, it's just it almost sounds preposterous, but then again, because it's been normalized, I can see in the context of everything why somebody might get the wrong advice. That's uh, that's that's frightening, but also I'm so grateful for your work. That's amazing. So we received a really interesting question from a listener this week, and it ties a bit into what we're talking about because it does deal with, with pain, uh, but it deals with penis fractures. So before I share the question, I wanted to share a little bit of information because I know some people had no idea that penises could essentially break. So do they happen? Yeah, fractures can happen, although they are rare and there is no bone in the penis. There's a bone, but not a bone, if you know what I mean. So it happens when the penis is erect and is very suddenly or forcefully bent. And that trauma can rupture the lining of one of the two cylinders in the penis, which allows for those hard-ons. And in 2009, if you were watching Grey's Anatomy, or I think it's maybe season six, if you've watched since, fans got a little sneak peek at this when character Dr. Mark Sloan fractured his penis and within hours, apparently, Google went crazy with people searching penile fracture, broken penis. How do I not break my penis? All that kind of stuff. So I'm going to save you from that search. You don't have to go and, and figure that out. Here are just some more tidbits about it. It usually happens during intercourse when the penis is penetrating potentially a vagina, an anus, or a mouth, although it's a lot more common with vaginal and anal penetration. It can also happen during masturbation or this practice called tacondon, which is a cultural practice I had difficulty finding much more information about. But basically, they intentionally bend the end of an erect penis. So obviously, that makes it pretty risky, right? It's painful, as you can imagine. And other symptoms might include a cracking sound, an immediate loss of, of erection, and there also might be some deep bruising throughout the penis as blood's flowing through. If it happens, it is an emergency situation. So please call 911 and get your butt and your penis to the hospital right away. And from there, you'll probably need surgical repair. And yes, you can heal from it. You can move on from it. But the key is treating it early and straight away because it can actually lead to deformity if you don't get support. In an interview in the LA Times, Dr. Tom Liu, who is a professor of urology at UC San Francisco, said they see a fractured penis about once a month at their hospitals, which again is not a huge number, relatively speaking. It's still not all that common. However, they have become a little bit more common with the in invention of drugs like Viagra. People having harder hard-ons, for example, might make it a little bit more likely. And a lot more common are more mild and painless injuries to the penis during sex. So that can be from wear and tear uh, leading to this 
particularly prevalent condition called pyroenes disease, which leaves the penis with a dramatic bend. So the question we received from Alice which I think is so important. Thank you for writing this, Alice. She said, I accidentally broke my boyfriend's penis a year ago while going a little too nutso in bed. He's healed physically and said he didn't even blame me, but I'm having trouble letting go during sex and often feel guilty over what happened. So I cry and shut down completely. What can I do to feel better while also never injuring him again? Thank you so much for your question, Alice. Here's what Dr. Megan had to say. Alice. Uh, thanks for this question, and um, you know I'm glad that you're bringing up a topic that often probably isn't discussed. Uh, you know this idea of fracturing a penis, and I know that August has covered some of those facts uh, earlier in this episode. So I really wanted to address here, um, you know, how do you move forward? And you know, arousal is about you know relaxing and letting go, and um, it feels like from your question that you know. I imagine you're quite inhibited now and very cautious. Um, and more importantly, again, you bring up this idea of feeling guilty and, and really sort of shutting down completely. And it makes me want to help you think about uh, and take a step back and recognize, you know, what is guilt? Um, because in my mind, uh, we should feel guilty when we've knowingly done harm to someone and we recognize that, we feel bad, and you know, we, we make the repair, and we do what we can do to make it better. And in this case, I think the part that I want you, hopefully, to have compassion for yourself is to recognize you didn't consciously and on purpose do this uh, to hurt your boyfriend. Uh, it was an accident. It was an unfortunate accident. It was a painful accident. Um, and that, you know, the important part is you recognize already in response that, you know, he's not mad or angry. It, so I think it's, you know, I'm trying to think how it can help you unburden yourself from that feeling of guilt because it really doesn't belong here. You feel bad about something that happened and it was an accident. And I think in terms of moving forward, you know, the role of letting go is also to be mindful of, you know, certain positions can be more risky, right? So uh, we certainly know from a Brazilian study and other studies that, you uh, in that study, half of uh, penile fractures were because women were on top. Uh, and other risky positions are also cowgirl and reverse cowgirl. And the reason for that is, uh, again, it's all about angles and when if there's too much force. So often if you're really sort of letting go, your words not so, uh, chances are you pulled out maybe being on top uh, and, and when coming back down, he hit sort of your pubic bone or your buttock, but that basically your body weight came down on his penis and it didn't go right into your vagina. So, you know, that's something he can sort of be holding your hips, um, sort of guiding that you're not uh, sort of, you know, sort of thrusting and getting that, you know, staying more towards the sense of a grinding position. But again, even with grinding, that you don't want it to be sort of extreme angles because that's really what can um, put anyone at risk. And um, I'm sure August Carlos uh, covered this, but this idea that when, if it happens, you know, seek direct medical attention. It can either go to the emergency room or certainly see a urologist within the first 24 hours because often surgery is needed. And if you wait longer than two days, it really can impact uh, your treatment outcome. Uh, so again, going back to the psychological, 
you know, I think it's recognizing how do you just get sort of the mojo back and realize you can let go. And so maybe for, you know, I'm not sure if you guys have considered this, but maybe taking penetration off the table for a while and just really enjoying sort of everything but and all the ways you can pleasure one another and maybe it's mutual masturbation, bring each other orgasm, because I really want to extinguish sort of this response of um, apprehension and tension that you're feeling so that you can fully relax, right? Relax and let go. And then sort of Transition and, you know, enjoy perhaps missionary and other positions, but really just recognizing, um, you know, you're both there together and that uh, this is an uncommon occurrence, but because it's in your experience and it's happened, it's now sort of top of mind. And so now we have to help you sort of extinguish the memory and recognizing it's about letting go, having fun. And because this has happened, I imagine if it starts to get really vigorous that you both are going to be a little bit more mindful and like I said maybe he can sort of guide your hips and um, you know sort of rein it in when and if it feels like it might be sort of getting sort of out of control and the other thing is I'm not sure because you didn't allude to it but uh, whether or not maybe you were uh, drinking or um, perhaps smoking pot or using some other drugs because it's not uncommon if you're not completely in your mind because you're just disinhibited and really letting go um, that might be something also to be mindful of, uh, that sort of a sober experience or you know just a few drinks, but really just feeling like you have all of your senses because that's what ultimately helps us all to make good decisions and really know um, what feels good. So the biggest takeaway I have for you is to allow yourself to really release any guilty feelings because you didn't do this on purpose. You didn't do this to knowingly cause or hurt or harm your partner. It was an accident. Um, and I think together just explore and just learn how to relax again and, you know, try on other positions and sort of take it slow. But ultimately, absolutely, it's about letting go. And, you know, he really wants you to have fun just as much as he ha wants to have fun. So just make sure that you allow yourself to let go in the way uh, and just to really enjoy the pleasure of your sex. As always, love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. As always, such wonderful advice. Everybody check her stuff out at greatlifegreatsex.com. I love that she mentioned all the different factors that might be helpful and might be contributing and different positions. Uh, one article I read actually had a quote that said a doctor said, woman on top is especially dangerous. That's a quote. And it irritated me a bit because it's not inherently dangerous and it's a very pleasurable position for a lot of people. Um, you get great clitoral stimulation that way. You don't have to avoid your favorite positions. But I do think that making sure that you are mindful for your own comfort sake especially because it sounds like, you know, I don't think you are going to go as, quote, nutso, as you said before, in the in the same kinds of ways. So even like Tantra, I think, could be helpful, doing breathing exercises, being more mindful and connected and, and really forgiving yourself. I know Dr. Megan mentioned that too, but I feel like you're carrying a burden that you don't need to carry. And it's easy to kind of like self-punish, you know, to feel like if we're feeling guilty, then we're still punishing ourselves and we're that that's how we show that we are truly sorry. But but really, I'm sure your partner wants more than anything for you to be able to let go and, and experience pleasure and be together. And you 
absolutely deserve that. So for yourself first, I hope you're able to find that self-forgiveness. And it sounds like you have a, a great partner. And I hope that maybe you're even able to laugh a little bit about it in the future and, and just really find all the pleasure that you deserve. So thank you again for your question. She brought up a lot of good points about the emotional factors involved, Heather. And I was wondering, I know you don't come from a psychological um background, but you do, obviously. People come in, they probably bear their souls pretty often. They have someone that they can finally trust who's validating, and and obviously they're dealing with a lot of emotional stuff. So what are some of the um, issues you see arising and and some of kind of the, the support that you aim to offer? Right. So I always sort of, to help be an icebreaker when I try to bring up maybe the psychological contribution that's happening is I always give them a disclaimer that I'm not a psychologist, but I do have my psych minor, but that doesn't qualify me to provide the in-depth level of counseling that a lot of these women do need. So I feel like I've become really good over the years at identifying when there are intimacy issues and even just bringing it up because someone like, no, like, you know, oral sex is fine and it's really just penetration. We just can't do penetration. I have no hangups about sex. And so I find with them, maybe they probably don't need the counseling as much as People that come in and they're crying from like day one and maybe the first couple of visits and there may be, you know, several failed relationships or, you know, or any, you know, if I can just tell, I can just tell that they have a hard time managing the either shame or dealing with maybe the belief system that led them here. If it's the case of like some of my more religious background patients and I just will refer them to someone that's more um, qualified now you know, therapists that are really good at dealing with sexual pain disorders. I I don't know of any that are in network with insurance, so they tend to be pricey. And patients might not be able to afford coming to physical therapy and going to see a qualified sex therapist or, um, you know, they just, there's there's financial considerations. They're not able to get the time off work, whatever it is. You know, everybody has has their, their limitations. So oftentimes I am just being the person they can talk to about it but I don't really give formal advice. Yeah, but but yeah. just being that listening ear and that person that they can share their their private pain with is, you know, very healing to them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Again, validating and also having a, a space to talk it out. I've interviewed a few sex therapists for my book, and a lot of their approach has to do with creating a safe space to discuss like period. And sometimes that's all somebody needs. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what is kind of your top advice for somebody who's experiencing sexual pain and they're in a really scary place right now, feeling very alone? Maybe they have been turned down by doctors or just kind of brushed aside. What would you say to them? Uh, well, that's the hard because if they're if they're coming to my office, I just ma- start making the appropriate referrals, the appropriate physicians, sex therapists, uh, you know, specialists to check their hormone levels. If I can see there might be some hormonal influence happening um, with the tissue, you can tell just by visual exam that there may be estrogen deficient, for example. Um, so I can do that. Now, generally over the air to the audience on my website, I do have a link of uh, trusted providers, and they're actually all over the U.S. Um, so, you know, not in every state, but I've had like my 
my colleague out in Pennsylvania, she's like my Pennsylvania version of me, one of my best friends who does this pelvic floor PT stuff. And she had somebody drive like a couple hours because she found her on my website and wanted to come see me, but she lives in Pennsylvania. And so, you know, that was the closest person that she could see. So I do have um, under one of the tabs recommended uh like trusted providers is what I call it under my resources tab. And your website address again is? Is feminapt.com, F-E-M-I-N-A-P-T.com. Awesome. And I'll be sure to share that link in the follow-up blog post too. So find it there. You can also click on it at augustmclaughlin.com if that's easier to get to. And I love that you're such a great resource. Tell us a little bit about your book, why you decided to write it and where people can find it. Yeah. A couple years before it published, I was just starting to get all these emails from like Germany and like Spain. I'm like, where are these people finding me? I mean, clearly I, I put stuff online. I write blog posts and try to, you know, get my name out there and mainly for the purpose of educating women that these are real conditions because I want women to know that they're not alone and val- help validate their um, their pain. So I'm like, hmm, and I'm getting these emails and they're like, I have, you know, I've been diagnosed with vaginismus, but I don't know what to do. There's nobody in the area. I'm like, I can't provide advice over email. Like I don't, this is way too complicated of a problem. So Um, after I got like three or four of those, I replied, I'm actually writing a book and I hadn't started writing it yet. I love it. (laughs) But I'm like, so I'm like, okay, now I've sort of, I'm committed. I told one person I'm writing it. So so they might be, (laughs) I'm I'm being held accountable to this. And so I just started writing it. And I initially went out thinking, okay, this is gonna be like a 15 page pamphlet because nobody that has pain, I don't care what kind of pain it is from my patients, they don't want to read a 400-page book about their pain or how to fix their pain. I just wanted to make it quick, down to the nuts and bolts. What can I do about it? I don't care why I have it. I just want to know what I can do about it because it's physical and it's disrupting my relationship, et cetera. So the 15 pages grew to 99 pages, but still I thought that was pretty easily digestible. And it has diagrams and, you know, 15 of the pages are just stretching. So as far as like the meat of, you know, what's what's in there is it's very easy. Like people could read it in a day. Okay. So I wanted it to not feel so overwhelming. They're already so overwhelmed in their life with the pain and how it's affecting their relationships and intimacy with their partner. I don't want to add one more thing that's going to overwhelm them. I'm trying to help them. So that's kind of where the genesis of that is. And Um, And, you know, it's been fairly well received and I'm just like very thankful for like just having the time that I could put that together and the resources to publish it. Um, I did self-publish it. So I was just very thankful I could pull together all the resources to make it happen because I just felt like the information had to be out there. Beautiful. And I know it's on Amazon as well as your website. Yes, you can get a PDF download um, directly from my website. It's a non-printable format, um, but yes, all ebook retailers. And then you can pick up the print at Amazon. Sometimes it is sold out on Amazon, so you can also get it at cmtmedical.com if you're in the U.S. Awesome, awesome. And I think, let's see, sexwithoutpainbook.com. Yes, that would be the direct download. Beautiful, awesome. And it's also, I think, a great resource for somebody if a friend tells you they're experiencing pain instead of saying oh yeah it happens to all of us yeah well I'll like you know give this book to some people when I you know it just comes up because I used to not really tell people what kind of PT I did and a few years ago I'm like why am I not telling everybody what kind of PT I do it's awesome and everybody needs to know about it 
So I'm always like, you should just get the book and have it on your coffee table. It'll be a great conversation starter because it will, because somebody is going to walk by and think, that is me. And I didn't yes. realize it was a thing. Yes. So. Thank you for starting those conversations because bringing it out of the dark is so much of it. It is. It is yeah. for sure. And I know that you have also some exciting things coming up. You're developing a webinar. Yes. So now I'm committed to it because you mentioned it, <laughs> just like the book. But I have actually started um like a script for it, but it's to go along with my book because now, now that my book's out, I'm getting people emailing me questions from my book. And I'm like, I can't, like it's too, this is too much information. So I'm trying to take like a lot of these frequently asked questions, but also, you know, take them through module by module through a webinar, through my book, but then have that extra support that they can access at any time and, you know, allow like Skype sessions too for follow-up, things like that. But I feel it's just so important to have that, you know, I I jokingly call myself a cheerleader sometimes. I feel like these women, if they just bought my book, they have the tools. This really helps a lot of women, especially if it's just very straightforward vaginismus, like only the muscles, right? And women might have been told they have vulvodynia, but just so you know, ladies, like it could be vaginismus. Don't, you know, don't discount that. Any woman that's painful sex, if the skin is good, I think this book gives them the tools that they need to be pain-free. But sometimes people still come to me like, oh yeah, I got the book. I just, you were close and you know, you live in LA and I just really feel like I need support to to get through this. So what's another way I could do that if they're not in LA or they don't have the the time or the financial resources to come see me, I can still talk to them, you know, through a pre-recorded webinar and they can maybe still feel they have that extra level of support that the book might not offer them. Perfect. And I love you being a cheerleader because I think especially if you, after you've gone through the hoops of trying to get support and it's probably been an uncomfortable experience, not only physically, but emotionally and stressful and hitting walls and feeling stuck. And then to have somebody who's like, you can have awesome sex. Like it's so positive and what you do is great and, and you're okay and you're normal and this isn't normal, but we can get through this. Exactly, exactly. And you also have some small group exercise classes, Restore Your Inner Core. Yes, we do offer those in both of my offices. So they're they're depending on which office because I don't have huge gym space because that's not the kind of physical therapist I am. Um, we have three to six uh, patients at a time or, or community members. They don't have to be patients. And we just give them general education on the muscular system, um, you know, anatomy, attachments, posture, and muscles that can help with stabilizing the pelvic floor. It's really good with the incontinence or leakage issues with prolapse. It could help with pain, although if someone has vulvodynia, I wouldn't say go straight to that, but it would be a good class later because a lot of times these women, they they have very weak muscles underlying the high tone. A muscle that's in a high state of uh, contraction, basically, is not a strong muscle. It's actually very weak, and it's kind of easier to visualize on a curve. So if anyone's into Google and you Google length tension relationship of muscles, it plots as a bell-shaped curve. So muscles are short and tight. Um, They are weak, but also if they're overstretched, lengthened, they're also very weak. Your strength lies in the middle pretty much, you know, plus or minus a few degrees off center. And, um, you know, so if you're overactive, high tone with the pelvic pain issues, You don't want to start by strengthening, and this would be a huge point I should have made earlier, so I'm so glad it kind of came up. Uh, If you have painful sex, 
do not, please do not do a bunch of kegels to try to help your pain go away because your muscles are short and tight, most likely, like the majority of the women I see. You will only make your muscles shorter and tighter. You will not kegel your way to fatigue and the muscles will not spontaneously relax. They need more hands-on treatment or like a self-treatment with dilators, which are what I describe in the book. It's just a medical device that you can use for stretching the muscles inside because how else are you going to get to them? Uh, You need to put something in there and stretch them in a certain way and massage them in a certain way to get them to relax. And, um, you know, just please don't just do kegels because you can make yourself worse. I'm so glad you mentioned that. That is so important because I think that that would be an easy thing to Google yourself to and to to make things worse. And you also made me think of another point that I think is important for, for everyone to realize and really understand is that you don't have to keep having sex once it's painful in the midst of it stop (laughs) you know talk to your partner say it's not feeling good they want to know that too and you don't have to not only live with the pain but experience it one more second than you need right and repeated attempts at intercourse when it's painful will just set up more of a cycle of physical muscle guarding, but more of that cognitive expectation of pain, which will then make you essentially pre-contract, if you will, because now your muscles are guarding because you're expecting the pain. So you're going to be stuck in a cycle Mm. and you you can't just keep forcing your way to pain-free sex. It needs to be, you know, gentle, guided, stretching, that allows for gradually more stretch. There's not a quick fix. I mean, if someone was really, if they had the financial means and they wanted the faster route, injections in the area, Botox or like um, other substances that they might use uh, can help speed things along. But it's that alone is not the the cure. Like because Botox wears off after three months, just like it wears off in your forehead, it wears off in your pelvic floor. It has a limited lifespan, and you need to incorporate at least a dilator program to truly heal. And that will help heal that cognitive connection too. You see, you can insert a dilator of a certain size where maybe you couldn't even do a tampon. Like that's one of my first goals for my women when they have, can't can't use a tampon, that's their first goal. And usually within two to four weeks, everyone can put in a tampon without pain. That's pretty fast. It's pretty fast. I always, you know, I'm like summer pool party, like you don't have any excuses now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's so important. Yeah. And I think too, knowing that allowing yourself to be vulnerable enough to take care of yourself, to talk to your partner, to talk to somebody, a professional who is expert in this, that's really the beginning of so much growth physically, spiritually, emotionally, and and intimately with your partner too. So if it feels like you're completely vulnerable and it's scary, in some ways, seeing that as an opportunity and, and knowing that that could be the beginning of amazingness is so important. Yes, I agree. I've learned so much from you today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. And again, make sure to head over to FeminaPT.com to learn more about Heather and her work. And if you have a question for myself, for Dr. Megan, we love exploring them. Drop me a note by hitting the contact tab on my website. It's completely confidential, augustmclaughlin.com. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.